I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, one and all, and a very warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you are in the world, I hope you're happy and healthy. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Book Off. Or if this is your first listen, welcome. We hope you enjoy the podcast and will want to check out some of our backlists, which are all available to listen to anytime and for free, and include guests such as David Tennant, Adam Kay, Paula Hawkins, John Cooper Clark, Candice Carty Williams, Michael Connolly, Tracy Chevalier, John Boyne, Dorothy Kimson, Mark Billingham, Kit Duval, Kate Moss, Matt Haig, Eric Kelly, Tim Winton, Cecilia Ahern, Tracy Thorne, Taylor Jenkins Reed, Lem Sisay, Brett Anderson, Adele Parks, Elizabeth McNeil, Maggie O'Farrell, Richard Osmond, Anthony Horowitz, and many, many more, which I have run out of breath twice trying to say. But now for today's episode, and my first guest is a writer whose books include 14 novels, two cookbooks, and many short stories. Her 1999 novel, Chocolat, is a global bestseller and was adapted to the screen, as I'm sure we all remember, in a film starring Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp. She's an honorary fellow of St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, and in 2013 was awarded an MBE. In short, she's far too decorated to be on this podcast. I am, of course, talking about Joanne Harris, who's here to tell us about her latest novel, A Narrow Door. Welcome to you, Joanne. It's great to be here. Thank you. And lovely to have you with us. Uh, and my second guest had a very eclectic career in marketing and PR before becoming a full-time writer. She's been shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger, the Thigston's Prize for Best Thriller, and the Prix de Polar, which I've tried to say it properly in French, and Joanne will correct me if I'm wrong, to name but a few. Here to tell us about her latest novel, The Pact, it's Sharon Bolter. Welcome to you, Sharon. Thank you, Joe. I'm honoured. Uh, well, we, we are honoured to have you both. And I, I feel like maybe you've met before Sharon, Joanne, Joanne, Sharon. We have. Joanne probably doesn't remember. And in fact, I'm rather hoping she doesn't because she's been one of my literary heroes for a very long time. <laughs> and when we met, because we, we were both with the same publisher for a long time, I I just collapsed into a gibbering heap on the floor. So I'm sure she thought I was drunk and just moved on very quickly. But um, it wasn't the drink, Joanne. It was hero worship. Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. You know, when I when I first met Ray Bradbury, I just burst into tears. 
really? <laughs> yeah, we were having dinner and I just couldn't speak to him for about 20 minutes. I, it was just too overwhelmed. Really? It does happen, doesn't it? When you first, when you get your first book contract and suddenly you're mixing with people who you have heard about for years, but never dreamt that you would meet. And then suddenly you're at dinner with them. Um, and it, it, it is a shock. It takes some getting used to. I don't think yeah. I have got used to it. I never will. <laughs> and that's, that's part of the magic, I think. Yes. I think probably, probably <laughs> yes, it is. But it's, it's quite nice. I mean, I know I live in Yorkshire, which means that I'm very sheltered from most things. But it's actually quite nice to hang out with people who do what you do and who will understand when you tell them that you're having trouble with an edit or with an editor or with, with carpal tunnel syndrome or something. And people don't look at you as if you're completely mad and those things yeah. don't matter. <laughs> that is nice but there's been very little of it the last 18 months because um the the, the pandemic brought all our events to a grinding halt and mm. um, so for for a good 18 months i don't think i've seen a writer in real life um and i have missed that interaction joanne is right they are we are the only people who understand absolutely what and, we and do yes i've missed it talk- too enormously mm. Um, this is what I use social media for. It's my little water cooler where I keep in touch with, with people in the business who, yeah, who, who get it. Yeah, because, of course, we forget that literary festivals and book tours and things like that are, are the opportunities throughout a year where writers do finally get together and they get to sort of see each other in the green rooms and things, you know, because what is generally quite a solitary job, you know, those are the times when you get to have those conversations. But, again, I... We we haven't been doing that, and I was at um, the Harrogate Festival in July, which which did go ahead, and I, I I took away from that from most of the authors there that the the best thing about it was that they were got, <laughs> got to see each other. You know, they loved doing the events in front of actual people and audiences, of course, which was wonderful. But but there was so much sort of outpouring of love for having being able to see each other again after so many years. So it was really nice, actually. Absolutely. I was gutted not to make it, actually. I I just made it virtually. Of course, virtual events and podcasts and things are really coming into their own, I think, and they're a real lifeline for a lot of people who who might not actually come to physical events. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I've been saying a lot uh, when I've been doing online events that, you know, there's a global audience now, uh, because obviously when we do book tours in the UK, for example, or you do a bookshop tour or whatever it is, that's brilliant because people in that local areas will come but um actually for fans or readers who live overseas don't don't get to experience that so with a you know a virtual event and i know some people have had enough of them but with a virtual event it's actually you know an, an audience from anywhere yeah. anyone can join it's a it's a useful addition to um to our <laughs> A box of tricks. Yeah. I'd be <laughs> very sad if it, it. Yeah. <laughs> if it takes over completely from the live event. You're absolutely right. I think an, an addition uh, and a lovely thing to be able to have is, is exactly what it is. Um, and, of course, podcasts are wonderful. And it's brilliant to have you both on this one. And over the next sort of 40 minutes, we're going to talk about both of your new books, which I've already mentioned. We're going to hear what you've been reading and enjoying recently and of course we'll do the book off where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you love that you think we should all read and you'll have three minutes uninterrupted to do so but before we get there uh, Joanne I'd, I'd love to talk about A Narrow Door and it, it seems like well it, it seems like ages ago and it was ages ago uh, when you and I were on the stage in uh, in Henley I think it was at the Literary Festival and I think we were talking about 
different class. Um, that that was then. This is now 2021, and we've got this book, which is based in St Oswald's. And I wondered what the trigger for writing another book in this setting was for you. Well, I think it's a setting I know very well, and they're characters that I've become involved with and interested in. And because this is really the only series that I'm writing, um, I usually know at the end of one of the books how the next one is going to begin. Mm -hmm. And Different Class was set in 2005 at the end of term. And this one, A Narrow Door, is set in 2006 at the beginning of term. I can't have very large time intervals because my (laughs) hero is really quite old and and I want him to remain credibly old around the time of of retirement. So I had to do this. But also I was was very curious to know what would happen at St. Oswald's next because in the two previous books, it has had a number of... um, challenges and reversals and things are just getting worse here so I thought you know I I need to know what happens (laughs) and of course you you taught in a grammar school for many years and you so this is where this this setting has come from and I wondered if the 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 stories or the germ of the ideas of stories have come from your time when you were teaching I think it's it's inevitable that I was going to write about teaching at some point. <laughs> For a long time, I said I wouldn't do it, partly, I think, because I was too close to that world. And also, I think I was waiting for some of my colleagues to die. But, um, you know, it was such, I mean, it was 15 years of my life I taught yeah. as a female teacher in a boys' school, which was already very old-fashioned and very traditionalist. And it was a kind of stage for tragedy and farce and all kinds of things. And, and it was just irresistible to to not I, it would have been impossible for me not to bring some of those stories into a book at some point hmm. and so yes these these three books um, set in the same place with with some of the same characters and for those that may not have read one of your St Oswald's books perhaps you could set the scene of the place for us and then just just tell us a little bit set up this book for us as well well this book stands alone although if you enjoy expanding the world and getting to know more about the characters it's fine to read the others um the hero if you like is roy straitly he is a latin master he is around retirement age and dreading retirement, even though he's now down to a department of one and the management don't really want his subject to continue. Um, But he has no other life outside of St. Oswald's. He has no family. He is very loyal to the school and to his boys. um, And he's going to hang on there for dear life. And for two years already, the school has been has fallen victim to a number of events, challenges, murders, um, mishaps. In in different class, the school was was brought into a sort of receivership, and a crisis team was asked to come and and to to fix things. Um, they lost the head, but the deputy um, Rebecca Buckfast has remained, and she is now the new head. Um, she represents everything that poor Straitly doesn't. She is bringing. <laughs> bringing the school kicking and screaming into the 21st century, even though it is 2006. She has uh, introduced girls to the school. She is building a number of new buildings and she has acquired academy status for St. Oswald's so that it now has all sorts of things that Straitly hates, computer departments, email, whiteboards, the whole of this. And and Latin, of course, is still hanging on for dear life, but she doesn't think much of Latin. Um, And However, you know, Straitly kind of admires her in some ways because she is, uh, she is in some ways an admirable woman. 
And when his, his Brody boys find on the site of one of the excavations of the new buildings what they think is human remains, he immediately goes to Buckfast to find out what she's going to do. Um, and what she does is she tells him a story. Surprisingly, she doesn't want to declare the remains to the police straight away. She wants to explain why she knows something about these remains and exactly why they shouldn't go to the police instantly. And so it becomes a story within a story. And we enter Buckfast's life, her, her backstory, her upbringing. And yes, she becomes Scheherazade. I, I, at the end there, you just you, you threw in that word, those words, and I sort of had to really think about what you. Said. I was like, oh yes, of course, of course. Well, <laughs> um, Fab- of course, in a thousand and one nights, is telling stories to save her life, and in some ways, Buckfast is doing the same because on yes. the second page of the book, she admits instantly that she's committed two murders. One is a crime of convenience, and the other's a crime of passion. Um, the reader has to wait until nearly the end of the book to find out if either of these two murders are connected to the remains on site. But her story is compelling enough and dangerous enough to St. Oswald's for Straitly to listen to it and for him to hang fire. Yeah, and us to hang fire. You keep us hanging on, Joanne, as well. Well, um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and in The Pact, Sharon, which is your latest... Um, you, you, well, it, it begins sort of 20 years ago. It, t- it takes us back 20 years ago with this group of six friends. Perhaps you could set up this story for us because you also tell us a bit and also keep us hanging on, don't you, in this one? Yes, of course. Um, well, The Pact um, is the story of, um, like, um, different class and a narrow door um, set in academia, a very mm. privileged Um, high-performing independent school in Oxford and when the story opens um, the senior prefect team of six people including the head of school are waiting to get their A-level results they will be out the next day so they're they're a little bit nervous but they're they're killing time Um, and that they're reasonably confident that 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 when tomorrow comes um, they will claim their golden futures they've all got places at at Oxbridge or universities of a similar caliber Um, they're all exceptionally bright good-looking young people their futures will be gilded Um, but all summer they've been playing a very dangerous daredevil game Um, they've been piling into a car in the small hours of the morning and heading towards uh, the M40. And there is a junction near to where I live because I live very close to Oxford um, that is a little bit confusing. You can either do what you're supposed to, turn left and, and take the A40 into Oxford, or you can turn right and head into oncoming traffic onto the M40. Now, somebody did that not very long ago with devastating consequences, Um, and the signage has got much better since, but there there is still this possibility you can still turn right. So that's what this gang of friends have been doing all summer. Um, They've been taken in turns to be at the wheel, uh, two o'clock in the morning, um, probably had quite a lot to drink, when they drive the wrong way down a very fast A road, and then the motorway, um, into oncoming traffic. Now, five times, they've got away with it. But on the night before their A-level results, um, it's the turn of Dan, who is probably the least confident of the group, um, the least capable driver. Um, but he's had a few drinks, so he decides he's, he's going to do it. He's going to 
take the initiation ceremony, if you like. Um, hmm. So they set off, and of course, it all goes horribly wrong. Um, there is a crash, a woman and her two young children are killed. So that's it. These six people see their lives slipping away from them. It's over. Um, they will go to prison. They will lose their university places. They will be outcasts probably for the rest of their lives because of what they've done. And they're conscious of their own sense of privilege. They know the world will not be kind to them. And then they have an idea. One of them says, well, hang on. We don't all need to own up to this. Only one of us needs to. Only one of us needs to say, I was in the car, to take the blame for the rest. And the, the head of school, um, a girl called Megan, um, who is one of the brightest, but a bit of an outsider in the group, she says, I'll do it. I'll say it was me driving, um, and that I was on my own, and that you lot had nothing to do with it. Um, and I'll go to prison if I have to. But here's the catch. When I come out, you will all owe me one favour. Whatever I ask, whenever I ask it, that's the deal. Well, they take the deal. Of course they do. You know, they, they feel as though they have no choice. And, and Megan does go to prison for a very long time. And then the book skips forward 20 years to when she comes out. And then the games really begin. <laughs> yes. And it sounds great, as though I've told you too much. But actually, you get the gist of that in the first few pages. That The yeah. real story is about how the group come to terms with what they've done and to what extent will Megan demand a terrible price from them all? I think, and then the games begin. Dot 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 is a, is a, just a perfect way to leave. To leave it wasn't that. mine. That's the marketing <laughs> team. <laughs> um, and I'd say all of the main characters are pretty unlikable. Now that's that's my take from it. And I, I'll, did you want us to find some? good or redeemable features in any of them, maybe in Megan? Well, I kind of hope that readers do. I mean, certainly initially yeah. they um, are not sympathetic characters because they're, they're all very privileged, very arrogant, and they do this dreadful thing and they refuse to face up to the consequences of it. They try to get away with it. So, of course, I, I know at that point my readers will not be on side with them. But I was hoping that... Uh, as the story unfolds, we will start, readers will start to see um, the humanity in each of them and start mm. to identify with what they're going through because none of them gets away with it. You know, Megan pays the price in prison. They all pay the price in different ways. They're all very mm. damaged by what they've done. Um, and cards on the table, by the end of the book, I loved them all. They were like my okay. children, and I would have given anything to make it all right for them in the same way I'd try to do for my own child if he made a terrible mistake. Um, but, but of course, with a, a mistake of that magnitude, I, I couldn't. Um, uh. But in the same way that I learned to care for them, I was kind of hoping my readers would too. Yeah. Here's the thing about the pact for me. We all like to think that if we made a dreadful mistake, we would take the consequences. Mm. But I'm not sure we would. <laughs> I think our, self of self our sense of self-preservation is remarkably strong. And until we're put in that position, I don't think any of us know what we would do. 
what we do. So be careful of judging others. (laughs) Yes. And of course, that's what you do when you're reading this book is that you think about, oh, well, I would definitely, you know, I would own up or I would, you know. We all think that, but would we? We think that. Yeah, would we indeed? Um, I've got a question for for both of you, and um, I'll come to you first, Joanne, with it, because as I sort of mentioned earlier, with both these books, we, we know we know a certain amount from the beginning as readers of both of them. And yet there's still a lot of mystery and intrigue and guessing for us to do. And I wondered how you decide how much to tell us and how much to, to keep back and when to put that in. Is that something that, that you have to write the book, Joanne, first and then look at it and go, OK, I've said too much there? Or is, is it is it planned out from the start for you? Well, I think with me, because I start with the character voice, because I nearly always write these things in the first person. Mm. I am generally guided by what I know of the character. And I, I usually have to know the character really quite well before I start writing the story. And I, I know what Straitley's voice is like, and I know what Straitley is going to do in most circumstances, because I know him well. With Buckfast, I had to really think about her and really plan something of her backstory before I started. And then after that, the, the distribution of knowledge, if you like, came quite naturally, because I alternated these two first-person narrators. And so every chapter had its own rhythm and its own mm. kind of delivery and its own little reversals and surprises and twists. And I kind of felt my way into them as I wrote the book. And that tends to be the way I do things. I've got a few pivotal scenes that I know are going to happen. And then the rest of it, it kind of finds its own path. Mm. And and you won't start writing a draft then until you've until you really know the character? Is that is that generally how it works? Well, I have to know quite a lot about the character. I didn't know everything about Buckfast's past because actually she doesn't either. Um, she is telling a story from several years back, from something like 17 years back already. And so we have these two time intervals. And during that first time interval, Buckfast actually is still prisoner of her past, her lack of memory. She has had a terrible traumatic experience when she was five. Her brother has been either kidnapped or murdered, has disappeared in any case from school. And this has affected the whole of her childhood, the disappearance of her brother, the reaction of her parents, the collapse of her family, um, has meant that she has never properly grown up. She has never properly understood what happened to her. She's never processed anything because many things have just been blanked out of her mind. And so her story is in some way a kind of retrieval of this memory. And so I was able to kind of play along with that for a while until I knew the full story. Mm. I knew what she was like in the in the present day scenario. She was she was absolutely in control. But before that, she's not. She's she's a damaged, vulnerable individual and and that was part of the challenge for me trying to get people to to like her having been told right from the start that she is a monster yeah. um and yeah. i think you know, most people were kind of rooting for her by the end <laughs> and sharon's nodding along there going yeah <laughs> did, did you know what i'm sort of asking the same question to you sharon i suppose uh, but but also now i'm interested in in your approach to characters and if it's similar to joanne and that you need to know them a lot before before you can sort of write the story? No, I'm completely the opposite. Um, I'm very much a plot-driven writer. I have to know as much as I possibly can about 
the story and how that will unfold before I can right. begin. I don't always know everything, um, sadly, but I, I try to know as much as I can and relatively little about my characters unless I'm writing one of my series novels. Um, my characters tend to um, build themselves as I go along in the way um, I tell their story and the way they react to events and interact with each other. Um, so it, completely the opposite. Um, but your point about how much to reveal is, is a very interesting one. And I think I err on the side of revealing too little, um, to keeping too much back and, and trying to keep my reader guessing too much. Um, and, and luckily, I, I have uh, very good editors who, who can spot that and pull me back, um, because I think otherwise readers would find the early chapters a little bit frustrating. So, um, But it, it is always a balancing act, because essentially we're writing mysteries um, with lots of secrets and lots of surprises, mm -hmm. um, and they have to be foreshadowed so that nothing comes as a rabbit out of the hat. But at the same time, we have to keep that element of suspense. Um, so it, it's a constant balancing act, a juggling act. Thank God for word processors is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, imagine, imagine doing that on paper oh. with a pen. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about uh, what you've been reading recently, because I love to ask both my guests, um, you know, what's been on their reading pile that they've got to, and it, it gives an opportunity for, uh, for our guests to, to shout about a, an author or book that they've loved. Joanne, have you been reading much recently, and is there anything you'd like to sort of recommend to us? Well, I've been reading a lot of novels by women in the general field of comedy, because I'm judging um, a prize called the Comedy Women in Print Prize. Yes. So I've been reading a lot of, a lot of books by authors that I don't know, um, and it's rather wonderful. I love reading outside of my genre, and sometimes I forget that I love this. And so sometimes it's quite nice to, to have to judge a prize in a genre that I don't know much about. And so, um, so this, is, this is fabulous. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, the very last one I read and put down is, um, is called Insatiable. It's by Daisy Buchanan, and it's a kind of intricate and quite dark sex comedy about mm. a young woman who becomes embroiled in the world of these two extremely uh, beautiful and desirable people who work in the art world who are about to offer her a job, but never quite get round to it. And they end up instead introducing her to their friends, who are swingers. And it becomes a very involved, intricate, and I think rather bleak, uh, love story between several people. Um, I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but I thought it was very good indeed. I'm not sure if it was funny, but it was very human and rather wonderful. Mm. Yes, it, well, Daisy was on uh, the podcast for our last series for when Insatiable first came out, and I remember her telling telling us a hilarious story about uh, about whether her parents had read it or not. I think you know they were all saying all saying on the family WhatsApp group, "Oh, when do we get to read your book?" And she was she was sort of going, um, "Okay, uh, I'll send it to you. I'm not sure you're going to like it." Um, but we should say, Comedy Women in Print Prize is uh, is Helen Lederer's uh, prize, isn't it? That that she started a couple of years ago, and a really really great thing that she's doing and, and shining a light specifically on on these authors. So yeah, that's wonderful that you're judging that. That's great and. I'm I'm the same as you. I love sort of reading outside of what I would class as my usual genres or my go-to genres. You know, to to be uh, challenged with a 
with, with something a bit different. It's always good. Uh, and what about you, Sharon? What have you been reading and enjoying recently? Well, I shamelessly begged a proof copy of uh, A Narrow Door because Joanne <laughs> and I share a publicist. So um, I, I read and enjoyed that very much. Um, a couple of books I want to mention. Um, the first is Magpie Lane by Lucy Atkins. Mm. Uh, this novel is set in Oxford, um, as the pact is. So I, I was very interested to read how Lucy handles a novel set in that city. Um, and the answer is superbly. I mean, it, it's such an evocative novel. It's the story of a family um, in this very privileged academic setting. Um, and it's 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 a very creepy book, but in a very subtle way. Um, the tension um, just sort of sneaks up on you until you hardly notice it until you're terrified. It is that good. Um, so that first. Um, and, and secondly, a, a book called Verity, um, which has taken um, the US by storm. It's a massive bestseller. Um, and I was recommended to read it because um, I was trying to write a sex scene. And I don't normally write sex scenes. I steer <laughs> very clear of it. But I, it's something I had to do. And I thought, well, where do I start? And somebody recommended I read Verity because it's packed full of sex. Mm. And it is. Um, but it's also a sort of contemporary twist on the Rebecca story. Um, that the, A young woman goes into um, a a, a family home that's sort of haunted by the last wife, sort of. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the plot now. But it is a gripping plot. Um, I, I read it in just over a day, which is not something I would normally do. Yeah. And then last of all, um, a, a non-fiction book by a woman called Charlotte Bauer, who is the older sister of a great friend of mine, Belinda Bauer. Now, oh, I'm sure yes. uh, Joanne knows Belinda Bauer because um, we were all with Transworld for a long time. Um, Belinda's a very clever writer, very funny writer, and, and Charlotte is equally clever and funny. And it's a sort of self-help book to leaving behind youth and becoming a middle-aged woman. So it's wise and it's poignant and it's funny and it's a very, very good read. And it's called How to Get Over Being Young. <laughs> brilliant that's so good oh and we'll uh, tell you what we are huge belinda fans here on this mm. podcast so you know she and indeed her family members can do no, no wrong at all so uh, yeah <laughs> that's a great recommendation um and just thinking of um you you mentioned novels set in oxford which obviously are are of interest to you i remember that the sort of specifically there's been many and there will be many more but i specifically remember one from a few years ago called tin man by sarah women who came on book off have you read that one because that's set in in and around oxford um and and again you know it's uh it paints a really i mean i don't I don't live there, I don't come from there, but it paints a lovely picture of, especially of sort of the, the river and the bridges and things. It's uh, yeah. that's a, that's a good Oxford though, novel. Yeah, even though I live very close to Oxford and it's the city of my son's birth and it's where he went to school for um, 11 years, I've always avoided setting novels there, mm. partly because it's been used so often by so many great writers. Um, you know, I, I really would have been standing on the shoulders of giants, but... <laughs> Some novels choose their own setting. And once I had the story of this group of very privileged private school pupils, it could only be set in Oxford. That's, that's, an, that's a really interesting thing, actually. Um, some novels choose their, their own setting. I, hadn't, I suppose I haven't really thought about that and in, in the sense that I just thought the novelist, the writer will say, this is where it's going to be. But I suppose if you 
if you've got the the story or you've got the the specific character, then I I guess yeah, maybe maybe you have there's certain places you just go yeah, it has to be that. It just has to be. I'd never really thought about that. Do you, is that is that something that you've experienced, Joanna, about a an idea or a character that that have have chosen the setting for you? I suppose. I think this happens to me every single time. Oh, right. I never consider the setting of a book because I already know what it is. I already have an intuitive sense that it couldn't possibly happen anywhere else. And inevitably, my St. Oswald's books have to be set in the north of England because I taught in a boys' grammar school not entirely unlike St. Oswald's in the <laughs> north of England. And my, my Lanskinet books, which are set in an imaginary French village in the southwest, not entirely a million miles from another real village in the southwest, you know, those, again, couldn't have been set anywhere else. Um, mm. To me, setting is always a kind of additional character in itself. And for a start, I need to write about places that I know intimately enough to be able to bring that out. But also, I think setting is such a powerful force on all the characters and their evolution and their childhood and where they went to school and what their parents mm. did for a living and, and all these things are part of the creation of a character. You are as much a part of your past as you are of your present. And so because all my characters have this excessive personal baggage from their past, the setting enters that arena so so early that it, it's it's I never have the luxury of thinking, hmm, where shall I set this book? It, it just never happens. <laughs> right. It doesn't happen. <laughs> I remember Patrick Gale talking to us on on Book Off a while back, and he did an event where he um, he sort of badmouthed Western Supermare by by not by accident, and then got such a backlash that he set his next novel in Western Supermare to make up for it. So you know, sometimes sometimes settings are chosen by <laughs> by uh, events. Um, before we move on to um, to do the book off and find out what you're both putting up, um, Joanne, I know last year that you were diagnosed with breast cancer and you shared your your journey of chemotherapy with uh, lots of us on on Twitter. And I just wondered how you're feeling and how you are and and what what you got back from people that you were sharing all that with. Oh, I feel great now. I've finished all my therapies. Um, I've still got um, some numbness in my hands and feet, but as you can see, my, my eyebrows are back and my hair is... They are back, yeah. Back, which is quite nice. <laughs> and I'm beginning to feel much more normal again, which is which is wonderful. Good. And, you know, I, I, I revealed my diagnosis early on, partly out of laziness, so that I wouldn't have to explain to everybody who came my way why I was the way I was, um, but also because I realized quite quickly that a lot of people were following that with personal stories of their own. And given that everybody during lockdown felt slightly distanced and isolated, I thought, well, maybe perhaps it will do some good. And I got a lot of people coming to me going, oh, yes, I've followed what you've said and I've just had my diagnosis and I'm going through exactly the same or... or I followed what you said and I got myself a mammogram because I thought I could put it off, but now I realize that I can't and all these things. So, you know, it was, it was nice to feel that something which, which is still surrounded by a lot of silence and taboo could at least be discussed on social media um, mm. for what it is, because you know, one in four people are, are going to get a cancer at some point. Um, mm. And it, it's, it's surprising to me that so many people that I know personally have actually gone through this and never told me until I got it myself. Wow. That's, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? 
And they felt, so I, I guess those people felt like, oh, I can talk about it now because you've you've been so open. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think it's it's cancer is a big scary monster, and scary monsters get bigger and bigger when you don't name them and you don't talk about them. But the more you, talk, you about talk about them, them, the more you demystify them, and in some cases even laugh at them, they get smaller and smaller and slightly less scary mm. for everybody concerned, which I think is, you know, it's a pretty good result. Yeah, a really good result. And, and a really great thing, I think, to have, you know, for, for people who were, were and are going through something like that and, you know, to see you talk about it and be able to have that dialogue or not or just read what other people were saying and what you were saying, I think, is is, is really, really great. And uh, it's great to know that you're you're feeling good and to see your eyebrows. So there we go. It's a, it's a bonus. Absolute bonus. Um... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) It's time for the book off now this is where each of you is going to get three minutes on the clock to tell us about a book you love and that you think we should all read and I never say to my guests to pick their favorite book because I think that's a almost impossible question and also a very different ask so this is the book that you think we should all read and before we uh, get into it I'd like to find out which book each of you is putting forward so Joanne I think you've already mentioned this author what book are you going to put up for us today I'm going to put up Ray Bradbury's novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And hopefully you won't burst into tears uh, when you're doing the pitch for this one. And what about you, Sharon? What are you putting up? (laughs) I'm putting up Donna Tartt's The Secret History. Fantastic. Now, let's work out who's going to go first and who's going to go second. So, Joanne, would you like to step up to the plate first or are you going to see what Sharon's made of before you uh, do your pitch? I'm very happy to do it either way. I think we've we've oh, both... Uh, so and Sharon has chosen one of my favourite books, and so I think maybe I'll go first and, and let, her, let her have that. It's a wonderful book. Um, I'm, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't think of it first, but <laughs> this one is special to me for different reasons. Great. Well, OK, you're going to go first, then, so that, and then you can sit back and you can enjoy Sharon's pitch about a book that you know you love. And, um, Sharon, that means you get to decide uh, which 
instrument, if, that, if that's what I can call them, um, is going to ring you out at the three minute mark. Now I should say you don't have to use three minutes, a lot of people don't, but once we hit that three minute mark I'm either going to be ringing you out with the school bell or honking you out with the bicycle horn. So which one would you like Sharon? I Neither. think Joanne should have the school bell, so I'll have the bicycle. Very, horn. very fitting, I think, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, we'll give the school bell to you, Joanne, and you, Sharon, can have the bicycle. All righty then. I'm going to put three minutes on the clock, and you've got three minutes uninterrupted, Joanne, to tell us about something wicked. This way comes over to you. Well, this is the book of my childhood. It's the book that I remember most in terms of discovering an author, discovering what could be done with language, and discovering what could be done with characters. It is set in October, which is the magical time for children, the time when you're excited because it's nearly Halloween, where the weather is still good enough to have dry, crispy leaves, where the, the days taste like crisp October apples and anything can happen. And the two heroes of this book are two diametrically opposed young friends, Will Halloway and Jim Nightingale. And these two boys are out for adventure, and adventure finds them. The seller of lightning rods starts this story off. He's a man who comes into their, their little town in the Midwest selling lightning rods, and somehow his appearance brings the arrival of, of something else, something that seems to be a carnival. Um, of course, it's not quite a carnival. It is the autumn people. We all know who they are. They're the people whose names we don't speak aloud. They're the people who offer us things that can't quite be turned down. And they have a kind of dark magic and a dark appeal. And I loved this book as a child because it was an adventure story, because it was absolutely on key for the kind of thing that I loved. But reading it later as an adult, I realized that it was even better. Because as an adult, it is a reminder of exactly how wonderful it is to be a child and exactly how childhood works because Ray Bradbury has this habit of projecting people back into early adolescence and reminding them what it's like to step into a library for the first time, what it's like to feel that you're on holiday from school and that the, the holidays are going to last forever. It is also a wonderful book for adults about lost youth and the temptation perhaps of finding your youth again because the man in charge of the secret carnival, Mr. Dark, has this ability. And this rather charismatic man is able to allow people one ride on his wonderful carousel. And if he rides backwards, he takes you back. And this, the older I get, the more appealing it becomes. And the more eager I become when October comes around to listen for the bell of that train which brings the carnival to town and you know, perhaps hitch a ride on that carousel, even though I know it will mean my soul. Everybody needs to read this book, first as a child, then as an adult, and then perhaps as an adult who has had cancer and has seen Mr. Dark's face just, just from the tail of their eye and who knows what he can promise. It's a warning, a beautifully penned, beautifully written warning. It also contains, I think, the best chapter in the whole of the English language, which is the shortest. <laughs> uh, oh, now that I'm, I'm sort of, I was, I was holding on there, thinking I can't, I can't interrupt you now, but I had to. Three minutes up. Um, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you the best chapter in a minute when Sharon's finished. 
We're going to have to. We're going to have to find out about the best chapter, um, which I'm just going to make a note of here so that we can talk about it. That was brilliant. I love that. I was just so drawn in. I almost didn't look at the time properly. Um, thank you, Joanne. That was fab. Have a little rest now. Have a breather. Uh, I've put three minutes back on the clock, Sharon, uh, for you to tell us about The Secret History. Over to you. So The Secret History was published in 1992, which makes it nearly 30 years old. Um, but it's still, I think, the quintessential psychological thriller. And I just want to read the first sentence because it's possibly one of the most evocative and impactful openings to any novel ever. The snow in the mountains was melting and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. And that takes you right into the heart of the novel because this isn't a whodunit, it's a why done it. We know at the outset that a young man called Bunny has been murdered, and we know fairly soon, within the first few pages, who's killed him. Our narrator and his four friends are responsible. The novel is about why. What happened to these six young people who had their whole lives ahead of them? What made five of them do something so devastating as to murder one of their own? And importantly, how do they deal with what they've done? So the story is set in a prestigious college in Vermont. And there's a wonderful sense of place about the novel. Um, we really do feel that we're part of a privileged, Ivy, we're in that privileged Ivy League setting in one of the most beautiful parts of the United States. And we get to know our narrator, Richard, and, and feel his sense of isolation as because he's a very poor student. Um, and he's getting a glimpse of a world that he longs to be a part of, but is cut off from forever, or so he feels at the, at the opening. He aspires to be a classic student, um, to, be, to join a group of five very glamorous, slightly mysterious students who study ancient Greek. Now, eventually he is accepted into the group, but, but only to find that they have a very dark secret, which inevitably he gets drawn into. There are a lot of books I could have chosen to talk about today and because I always find it very hard to, to choose a favourite book. But this one has a particular resonance for me right now because subconsciously at least, I think it was a very strong influence when I was writing The Pact. Um, the Pact has been compared by many to The Secret History, which flatters me enormously. Um, and both books deal with a mishap committed by very young people with devastating consequences. And in both narratives, we see a group of very privileged youngsters struggling to come to terms with their own actions. And, and both books are about how we handle our own mistakes. Um, the Secret History has a cast of characters that aren't terribly likeable. Um, they're rich, privileged, selfish and self-absorbed. The one character that we identify with, the narrator Richard, initially attracts our sympathy because he's the outsider, the poor student desperate to be accepted. Um, oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, I set my own alarm so I could see where I was going. and that, that oh. <laughs> oh, it's such a brilliant book. Um, ages and ages ago, uh, we had uh, Tracy Thorne on Book Off and she loved that book so much she she said she'd reread it's one of the only ones that she'd sort of reread and reread um and i yeah oh, and times. i think it, it is a book well i think it's a book you can is it's one of those ones that you go yeah i could i could ease because there's so much in it you get much more from it 
the more you read it. Um, another fabulous pitch, Sharon. Now, I need to come back to you, Joanne, because y- you mentioned this chapter and then you were rudely cut off by the school bell. So just tell us about just tell us that chapter that you were talking about. well i think this is this is the probably the shortest chapter in the in the history of of chapters and also the most resonant it goes nothing much else happened all the rest of that night it's marvelous that's I'm going to have marvelous. a tattoo with the whole of that chapter chapter 31 <laughs> of something wicked this way comes <laughs> i think you should <laughs> it would fit nicely, you know, just along an arm or something, wouldn't it? It'd be that bit, right? <laughs> um, I loved this pitch, Joanne, because I don't know, I don't know the book actually, and this idea of reading it, you know, being a book of your childhood and then reading it again as an adult and almost and almost getting more out of it is just wonderful. Um, you painted a, a wonderful picture of the of the characters. Um, Will and Jim being opposites, but also, you know, the the mysterious awesome people and on all the sort of mystery and magic that comes with it. Um, and I think, you know, it's had an e- even more of a resonance with you recently as well, which I think is just it's just so lovely that you can pick up this book and and get something else to get out of it again, but also appreciate that he was right. He, he wrote it so brilliantly for children but that adults can get something out of it. Um, I really want to pick it up. I really want to read it. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And I sort of don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to read it in, in, I don't want to be reminded of being young, but equally <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like I could get over that part of it. <laughs> and then the secret history, just, I mean, we could talk, we could talk about that for, ages as well and obviously Joanne you've said you love it and you're so right when you say you think it's still the quintessential psychological thriller Sharon because I did I actually just looked up when it was because I thought to myself oh I think it was late 90s no 92 it's 30 years old next year and Mm. that's baffling to me that it's It's timeless isn't it but it is timeless you also talked about the wonderful sense of place and I agree with you because I can still, I still remember it. I remember some of those descriptions of snow. I remember the, the hot, the loungy sort of summer days that they spent. You know, she creates the silver birch trees. Yes, that's the um, abiding image for me from that book. Does he describe them as being like ghosts? mm. Yeah, something. Yeah, it is, and it's you know the imagery is is fantastic, and it's so there's so much in it. Um, it's just, it really is a wonderful book. And so as you were talking about it, um, and then you went on to say, you know, subconsciously it, it, it has influenced the pack. Cause as you were talking about, it, I was thinking, Oh yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of parallel here to the pack, which is so great because you know, it, you're talking the characters particularly and their sort of privilege. And there's, there's a real sense of that from your new novel. I, I just love this book. Um, and of course I, I've read it so that, and I haven't read uh the other one so it's <laughs> that i have to try and separate that um i i'm really intrigued about something wicked this way comes and i th- i feel like ray bradbury is someone i should read joanne you know to uh, should be getting getting to grips with with him as a writer you definitely should read him if you haven't read him already i think he is one of the great underrated writers and uh, and his voice is very strong because this book is 1960 
two, I believe. So that'll be sixty years next year, um, which is which is amazing. When did you uh, meet him? I met him. Um, oh, I, I know Chocolat was out, and I was I was touring. And I was mm. in Los Angeles, and we shared a publisher at the time, and I'd been going on about how much I loved his work. And she said, oh, well, Ray lives in Los Angeles. Maybe you can have dinner. So I said, uh, yes, okay. And, and so we <laughs> went and had dinner at this place, and he was such a wonderful man. He was there with his wife, and they'd been married for nearly 60 years. And wow. they were just holding hands all the time, and they just seemed so so wonderfully sweet and in love and i just i just couldn't i just couldn't talk to him for a while and when he died my my band and i wrote wrote a song about him which we still play uh every time we do our, our show we still play it at the end as as part of the encore. oh that's so lovely is it is it named after him or is it it's a about time? him it's 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 called transit of venus which is actually when he died this was the astrological event that that actually went on and it's a very rare event and i just thought how interesting that somebody who writes so beautifully about space should should actually choose that particular moment to go yeah. off into the stars and so i wrote this this uh, this song in three parts and we project images of of, of his face and his books and oh, and we so wait nice. for the audience to twig who I, who i'm talking about Oh, wonderful. What a lovely tribute. That's fab. And so great that you got to meet him, isn't it? And, you know, even if you did, couldn't speak to him for a little while, uh, it sounds like it was still a nice dinner. Um, gosh, I mean, which one do you choose out of these two? Honestly, they were both great pictures. I, I must, must read some Ray Bradbury based on that. Um, but you know what? I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to choose the secret history show. <laughs> and I think Joanne will be okay with that as well because I know you, you love it. And I think the reason, other than it was a great pitch as well, is that you, I, I I want to reread it. Hearing you talk about it just then has made me think. I know I've already read it twice. I think I want to read it again. It's almost like I should read it every ten years, you know, and just and just enjoy it again. Um, so I'm going to take the secret history home. But now, thanks to you, Joanne, I'm also going to check out Ray Bab. Brad Bree, so thank you for bringing so am I. I'm, I'm attention. completely sold. You you didn't know of him either, Sharon? No, I've never read him, but I was completely drawn in by the pitch. Me um, too. So that is that's my next read. Fantastic. There you go. So you've got two two converts there, Joanne. So that's that's pretty good going, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Pact by Sharon Bolton is out now It's published by Trapeze And A Narrow Door by Joanne Harris Is also out, published by Orion And I've loved reading both of these books And loved even more talking to you uh, On the podcast Sharon, Joanne, thank you so much for, for joining me For your recommendations And for your time, it's lovely to speak to you Great to talk to you Pleasure. too, Joe Thank, thank you. you Lovely to see thank you, Sharon And you, Joanne Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 